Hello, everyone, and welcome to Science Unscripted. It's Connor here. And Gib. We have received many, many, many emails, I think kind of as we expected, Gabe, on the topic of toxic masculinity in the wake of what was a very long interview with Sterling Cooper, an influencer who posts toxic masculinity content online. We aired that episode in full not long ago. It's also a YouTube video. That's that right. It's not, you can also watch that interview. I think it's, it's one that's way better to watch. Uh-huh. You, you can see a lot more of the dynamics that are happening during that discussion. Yeah, you can also see our studio, see where we are when we do these podcasts, Yeah, if you want to. Yeah, again, that's YouTube, and the YouTube channel is DW Podcasts. Worth checking out if you have time, but again, we have emails. Let's get to the emails. What do you got? Um, really nice one. Very long. Can't read all of it. It's from Laura. Mm-hmm. And she writes in to say, basically, look, I never write anyone, ever, yeah. when I listen to content. Uh, But she says that she believes this is the second time that she's writing us. And she says, basically, she wants to applaud both of us. I don't know if you read that part, Gabe. Uh, We did something she would not have been able to do. She says she would have gotten too emotional sitting across from a guy like that. Um, And that she feels, based on that interview, that there is absolutely no way to break down the wall of beliefs that this guy has uh, based on that conversation. That he's, he's entrenched too far. Um, one of the parts I liked a lot is that it's entrenched too far. Uh, one of the things she adds here toward the end of the email is that she says, I do believe you can tell what toxic masculinity is doing to society by looking at the statistics of violence against women. I think, Gabe, that's something you referenced either in that show or, or in a previous show about toxic masculinity. That was a study by the German Interior Ministry um, in the last year. It has risen 8.5% domestic disputes, and over 90% of those is where a, a man is physically abusing a woman. So it's on the rise. Uh, we can here say in Germany. Here in Germany. Absolutely. Exactly. She goes on to say, I'm not a scholar or a researcher. I'm just a minimum wage worker whose job is so brainless that I get to spend all my time deeply thinking about other things while working. And the last part I'll read here, she says, please keep doing what you're doing. It is worth something. It is important. So we are very happy to have reached you, Laura, with that topic and very happy that you wrote us. We've also got an email here from Tanya. Said, uh, hello, Gabe and Connor. I wanted to specifically thank you two for tackling the issue of toxic masculinity. I thought that was very brave of you. Two men wanting to take on this topic and to invite one of the promoters onto your show to get a feel for how he thinks Again, bravo to the two of you. And then she writes, I can relate to this experience. I had a personal trainer um, who morphed during my tenure with him. And she describes how over time he became more and more toxic, but eventually was able to get away from him. But that it was very hard to do that. Thanks for sharing, Tanya, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, not, not all the emails or, or messages we received were positive. We knew that going into it. It's not only a difficult, controversial topic. It's, it's hard to know how to talk about it best. Gabe, there was one, I believe a couple, who, who, who wrote into us at one point saying that one of, the, one, of the, yes. one of them had stopped listening or couldn't listen anymore. Yeah, they were, they were so irritated that they had to turn it off. Or I, I believe it was Sandra and Richard. And Sandra said that her husband couldn't, couldn't continue watching, couldn't stand it. Um, and then Sandra had words, I think, at the end of her email. If I can pull it up real quick. 
Yeah, okay, so your interviewee was completely delusional. His views may end up causing a great deal of distress. Women are the main victims of his beliefs, but sadly many male lives will also be ruined. And that was an important point that we tried to make during that show. Again, the idea, successfully or not, was to confront you, our listeners, with, with what this really sounds like. I don't know if you live in the same bubble that... I kind of do or Gabe does or I think a lot of people do where this is happening somewhere on the internet but we don't really see it or hear it or aren't really forced to confront it mm-hmm. and by forcing ourselves to confront it and forcing you to kind of confront it I think it's helpful to start to learn how to deflect that or not deflect how to how to deal with that that argumentation style a lot of which in that particular case was to change the subject or to talk about something else or to to, to not answer the mm-hmm. the question that I, that I thought we were asking again and again, do you see why some people view this as problematic? No, no. No, no, I don't. He didn't. <laughs> yeah, not all the comments were in favor. If you do go to our YouTube channel, again, it's DW Podcasts on YouTube, you'll see a couple of comments in there. One of them referring to us as um, not real men, that we are soy boys was mm. the insult. Well, sorry versions of man. You are quite sorry versions of man. Yeah, you're a soy boy. And I just want to say, I know that soy boy is used as a pejorative. It's a negative, it's an insult. You are an emasculated man or... A, because you drink soy milk instead of cow milk? That's where it comes from. And I just want to divulge that I do drink soy milk. I'm a soy boy. I really like soy milk. I think it tastes delicious. And I would love to know what the right version of man is. <laughs> if, if, if the commenter, if you're listening to this broadcast right now and you know... What what is the what is the right version of man? Please let me know. At least <laughs> we're trying to figure it out. Okay, on to some science. Uh, this science comes to you from the Max Planck Institute, uh, a huge scientific research institution or network here in Germany. And this one, what it really comes down to for me is Gabe. You'll remember. Do you remember when you were a kid? Mm. And hopefully, you were outside a lot with your friends, playing in the neighborhood. And uh, sure. especially this time of the year, it starts to get dark. And yeah, then all I love of a sudden, the smell of autumn, the leaves, everything's great. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I wasn't going there with it, but I, I, I like that too. Okay. Great. <laughs> it could be summer. It doesn't matter. You're out there, you're out scrounging around doing something with your friends. And a door opens up, and there's this voice, and it's like, Dinner. Yeah. And one kid from the group turns and runs home. And the reason that happens is because that voice even though it was a single word with two syllables, was clearly identifiable to everyone in the group as belonging to a very specific human being, right? Yeah. His dad. Or mom. Or mom. Yeah. Yelling that it's dinner time. Sure. And, and no other information is necessary. And that makes us surprisingly unique, we human beings, the ability to, to, do, to do that. That's called voice print. Okay. People have a unique voice print to the extent that it could be a crowd of 500 people, yeah. and you have a vo- this, this voice comes out, and you're like, ah, that's Jenny. That's my mom. That's Greg. That's Frankie. And that's, I'm running out of names here. Frankie, but. that's the name of my, my brother's dog. So. Is it really? Mm-hmm. That's a good name. Mm-hmm. So humans can do voice printing, or we can identify humans just by the print or the sound of their voice very clearly. Other animals cannot do that. So Okay, so that makes us unique to the animals. Unique comp- when compared to animals. Okay. So according to the Max Planck Institute, I'm going to trust them on this one. Mm-hmm. Other animals like dolphins or bats or even birds do something very different. And what they do is their very first... Well, they don't have voices to begin with. It's, well, they have something... They have different yeah, clicks and yeah. sounds. Yeah. They have something that's called a signature call. 
So this, if I if I understand it correctly, would be like a human being. It could be a yodel, the, like the very first thing that you do that clearly <laughs> identifies that that human. Yeah. Or I think the easier way to think about it, it would be like announcing your name, right at the very beginning of everything. Yeah, like at the beginning of the show. Connor yeah, and Gib. Yeah, that's true. We do that at the beginning of the show, and it'd be like if that same parent were to come out and be like, "Brian," to announce that I, Brian, am talking. <laughs> Brian, dinner, right? And that Brian's important for everyone to even know that it's Brian, right? Yeah. That would be the equivalent with animals. So the question their study was, how does it work with an animal that is one of the best, if not the best, at language in the way that we kind of understand language, and that is the parakeet. In this case, the monk. Parakeet. Monk parakeet. Yeah, so I will go ahead and play. I think most people kind of have a vague idea what this sounds like. Here's a clip from one of my favorite... Monk parakeets. <laughs> yes, one of my favorite monk parakeets. Right, not much for us to discern there. Yeah, but if you were a monk parakeet, you would be able to... You, that... If you knew that sound... You would know that that sound is coming from that specific animal? Based on this research, we don't have the answer to that yet. But th that was kind of the question they were trying to figure out. If you have monk parakeets, and a lot of them, and they're all chattering away, they, have to, they, they need to be able to figure out who's saying what. Otherwise, mm -hmm. it's just a cacophony. You can, yeah. it, what, what is going on here? Everyone's saying all sorts of stuff. Yeah. And so the assumption was, well, guess, you know what? I bet that they are like other animals. They must have a signature call. They must say, David, or Joanna, mm -hmm. as the very first thing to say, to announce, I'm the one who's talking now. So when I say these words, it's connected to me, okay. this, this parakeet. Yeah. And so they went to an area where they have the highest number of, I guess, banded uh, monk parakeets. So they have an identifiable band. You can figure out, okay, that, that no, one. Which is, one made that noise? Yeah. yeah 2,000 of them. You know where that area is? Um, Rio de Janeiro. Barcelona. Okay. <laughs> Of, of, of all places, Barcelona, Spain. And it's because the Museum of Natural Sciences over years has been tagging these things. Mm -hmm. In fact, it's 20 years that they've been doing this. And sorry, 3,000 birds, not 2,000 birds. Okay. All these birds. So they went out there and they recorded 5,000 uh, separate audio files where they, that they clearly connected to that bird. Like that, that bird A23 is doing the talking and this is what it's saying. And they had multiple recordings of those individual birds so they could connect them to the birds. Surprisingly, did they play the sound to the birds and see which one came? Uh, that would have been interesting, but there are ethics rules about doing that. Okay. In fact, this website that I got that audio from that I love, Zeno Canto, and by the way, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I love it so much because that, that monk parakeet that I got the noise from was from Barcelona. They've got a map and you can find them. And I downloaded that audio, but they have rules about, like, like you're not supposed to lure birds in with fake bird calls. Okay. Because think how confusing that is for a bird. Like, no, I, I know I heard I a bird. I swear I just, yeah. And instead there's a man with like a dish. What what's happening? So you don't do that. What they did was, can we find a signature call? Something that would be like announcing your name to let the others know I'm the one who's doing the, the talking. To their surprise, nothing. Nothing identifiable. You could not say who's talking when. So then they thought, okay, there must be something that's more like voice printing, the way we humans do it. And so they put it into the systems, ran some machine learning tools through it. Again, kind of complex, but the tools then if you were to take one of those bird files, put it back into the software and say, who's doing the talking? 
it was three times better than random at figuring out the answer, which is an indication of it being possible for there to be some sort of voice printing. Because this the software is starting to be able to do it, yeah. which indicates it is possible. It's possible that these birds... There is something unique about the sound. Yeah, and what's also interesting... Compared interest- to the, all the other thousands of sounds. Correct. And yeah. that, that clip I played for you, last thing I'll say on this topic, is one of, like a lot of birds, they have very different kinds of sounds. Maybe a half dozen or a dozen different things they can do. Mm-hmm. And the same effect was true when they jumped between sounds. So they have a growling sound, these monk parakeets that they can do. And they also have a tonal sound. And the the software could still distinguish between them and say, no, no, that's probably coming from that bird over there. Hmm. So the suspicion at this point is that parakeets, monk parakeets in this case, at least the ones in Barcelona, Spain, are able to, to understand the equivalent of someone yelling, dinner time, and to know exactly which bird is saying that and whether they have to pay attention to that information uh, that Despite would be the cacophony yeah. yeah which which is is new as i understand it or relatively new uh, there haven't been many studies like this when it comes to animals communicating with each other yeah quick question do you have a tattoo no no why not um whew. i think if you get one it's easier to have get 20 but that that threshold for that very first one I, i'm it's what are, what are you, what thoughts do you connect with having a tattoo? Okay, my my first real thought was that I uh, I translated a book from German into English by a guy here in Germany named Mark Benica. He's a c- criminal entomologist. He looks at bugs, and one of his books, he's tattooed. He goes on he's on German TV all the time, be- partially because he's tattooed. You instantly recognize him. Yeah. And his book, a different book, I didn't translate it. Was called Why People with Tattoos Have More Sex. So, and I didn't read that book. I don't know what the answer is, but my connection with tattoos is that um, it says something about you in a way that's bigger than the actual tattoo itself. It's about your lifestyle. It's yeah. about what you're open to or not open to. It's about how uh, how impulsive or spontaneous maybe you are or, or risk-taking. Like you might be... You here's might, a, well, here's a study based on an unbelievable trove of data out of the U.S., 40,000 participants who began filling out this or this longitudinal survey in 1994, five waves of questioning all the way to wow. 2018. And it was for, they were looking into criminological data. And so they were comparing, you know, how many of these people ended up getting arrested, um, being convicted, being incarcerated. And they also had information about whether they had a tattoo. And if you had a tattoo... And you're a man. It was two times, two point five times more likely that you had been arrested. One point eight times more likely that you had been convicted of a crime, and over twice as likely that you were in prison with a tattoo. And it was controlled for other things like self-reported delinquency and self-reported problems with self-control. So it's just, it's just the stigma. It's the they're they're trying to go they're trying to go from correlation to as close to causation as yeah. they can here. What well, by weeding out the other things that would lead to being arrested or convicted or imprisoned. Yeah. Two and a half times more likely if you're a man. If you're a woman, 1.7 times higher odds of being arrested, 1.68 times higher odds of being convicted, and 1.9 times higher of being imprisoned. So what they're trying to say is, by eliminating the self-reported delinquency, it's not that I get a tattoo and either because of my behavior before that or after that, I'm more likely to go into jail. It's more that 
I have a tattoo, and hence, if a police officer yeah. sees me, well, I'm more likely to be arrested and then convicted and then sent to jail. What is stigma, right? Stigma is a characteristic, characteristic about yourself that makes it more likely that people will discriminate against you. And this, in this case, it would be discrimination by the police, by the criminal justice system because of the tattoo. A tattoo makes you different than the rest of society. It's well, becoming less and less um, different as well, time goes on, I think, probably. But still, there is, it still is a stigma. When we walked into the studio today, we've got a studio tech here. I asked him what he thinks. What do you think when you see someone with a tattoo? He says, criminal, yeah, maybe a murderer. <laughs> I think he might have been joking because he then added that his daughter has a tattoo. But And I don't think she's a criminal or a murderer, <laughs> as well, far as I never understand know. it. Yeah, well, yeah. No, no, but that's that, what that that would be the direction. That would be what this study out of Kazakhstan and Florida State University. We're weird part, partnership really? there, but yeah. Huh. Okay. Well, one thing that I think you can possibly say because obviously it, would, it seems like the takeaway is that if I get a tattoo, police are more likely to arrest me and then I'm going to go to jail. It's also if and I'm basing this embarrassingly on TV shows like CSI mm. uh, and criminal identification shows. A lot, you you just see that a lot. I think where the tattoo is the defining characteristic that yeah. allows the arrest and conviction to happen. That that was one caveat of this study. Um, that there was no information about w- how big the tattoo was that these True. people had. True. Where it was, how was it visible? So you'd you'd need more information. But this. Then it, it's too, the numbers are too high, two and a half times more likely to be arrested if you're a man. One point seven times. That's there's something going on there, for sure. Do you have a tattoo? No. <laughs> what do you think I am, a murderer? <laughs> would you? Would you get one? Do you want one? There. It seems like a lot more people. I feel like have them today than I don't know in the in the 1990s. I wouldn't. I wouldn't get one. No. No. Would you get one, our listeners out there, based on what we have just said? I mean, we've basically thrown the idea of getting tattooed completely under the bus. You're putting yourself more at risk of of incarceration. And if you would get one, what would you get? Where would you get it? How big would it be? Yeah. And if you have one, where is it? And how do you feel about it today? That's a question I'm I'm not... And are you a criminal? (laughs) How many of our listeners are criminals? SU at DW.com. Are you happy is kind of the question. I I think it's more about your well-being or if you're satisfied with your life right now, sitting here, listening to this. And how old are you? What what phase of life are you in? Because those two things coupled together is kind of what we're going to be talking about today with Suzanne Brooker, who has done a gigantic study on subjective happiness science unscripted hi my name is suzanne i'm a researcher at university Wittenherdecke, and i've recently published an article on subjective well-being across the lifespan so suzanne you've done a study on when people are happiest or, or, or what phases in life they are happy and what phases in life they aren't happy what what did you find 
So for life satisfaction, we found that people seem to struggle during adolescence. So younger people from age 9 to age 14, for example, decrease in their life satisfaction. And then from age 14 onwards until 70 years of age, people increase in their subjective well-being or in their life satisfaction slightly, but steadily. And from 70 years onwards until the end of life, then life satisfaction decreases again. And you looked at those nine-year-olds, and, and what, what did you see? Are the 10-year-olds, 11-year-olds, 12-year-olds, up to 14, their happiness decreased throughout that phase, or, or what happened? Yes, exactly. Exactly. So their happiness decreased or their life satisfaction decreased, which is probably because this is a very um, busy time. So um, becoming an adolescent and being in puberty is a very intense time for young people. And there are also a lot of biological changes going on that affect their happiness or how they feel about themselves. So, I mean, we might be talking about something as simple as, as pimples, as acne, the, the scourge of teenagers, young teenagers everywhere. Yeah, but what nine-year-old gets acne? Oh, no, it starts. At, it can start at nine. Does it? Yeah. I had, I had some acne going on. And then you've got these, you know, you've got new body odors coming out of that, various okay, parts of your body, sure. right? You're not very, no one's happy with well, that. there's hair coming out of places that <laughs> yeah. there wasn't hair before. Yeah. So age 14, it starts to rise. And basically your data suggests that from age 14 all the way to 70, life satisfaction remains either stable or increases? Slightly increases, yeah. Um, it's not a huge increase, but it stabilizes. And possibly because people also stabilize their romantic relationships during that time, for example, or um, their financial situation stabilizes, at least on average, from young to middle adulthood. And also many other mostly positive life events or life circumstances characterize this period. Um, for example, starting your first job, but also uh, moving in with your romantic partner or becoming a parent, for example. So that's also something that can be negative, of course. But overall, people seem to be satisfied with their lives during that pe period. And you found no swoons in the 20s or in the 30s or the 40s that would reflect anything along the lines of a midlife crisis or something like that? You found none of that? No, no, we didn't, which was surprising because there is other research suggesting such a midlife crisis. But the problem of that research is that it's mainly cross-sectional research, which means that participants are just asked once about how happy they are. And then you accumulate a lot of research that is asking different people at different ages. And then you see such a U-shaped curve, but it's actually not a longitudinal trajectory in terms of following the same people across multiple years. And this is what we've done in this study. So we used longitudinal data. And with that, apparently, this U-shape doesn't seem to be the most obvious trajectory of subjective well-being or happiness. I'm just having a tough time imagining that your data can be true. And this is infused by my own <laughs> personal life experience, which is not a midlife yeah. crisis. That's not where my mind goes 
It's to the relatively hard early years of your career. And if you've had children of, of raising those children, those were, I'm not going to say those were dark times. That's an exaggeration. Those are hard. You're waking up multiple times throughout the night. You're, again, you're early in your career. You're, you're, you're stressed. You're, you're trying to do good work despite the exhaustion. Um, and I, I fortunately, I feel I'm coming out of that. I'm, I'm, I am out of that. And yet there's no, mm-hmm. Yeah. I would have thought, my life satisfaction was down at that point. But your data suggests that somebody like me, if you tracked me over time, it would stay stable. My, I, I, would, I would keep saying, yep, my life satisfaction is an eight. It's an eight, it's an eight, it's yeah. an eight out of 10 across the board. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you are mentioning a very important point. So one other line of my research uh, studies major life events and changes in, for example, subjective well-being, but also feelings of loneliness surrounding such major life events, like becoming a parent or marrying or getting divorced. And what people typically think is that these major life events must be very impactful for their subjective well-being or for their feelings of loneliness. But then when we look at such longitudinal data, and as you just said, ask people every year or even every month how they feel, then they report rather stable effect. And in the retrospective, they still think that they must have changed during that time, that it must have been horrible for them. But apparently people seem to adapt or at least respond in questionnaires when getting asked about their subjective well-being Um, in different ways. And maybe also because society expects us to be happy when becoming a parent, for example. So people don't want to admit then that they might have um, some yeah, downsides in their lives during that period. Um, and these retrospective assessments of how we feel might differ from those we see when we ask people directly after the major life event or even multiple times surrounding such life events. That was Suzanne Brooker, who has just changed jobs. She was, she was at Cologne, the sport university in Cologne. And now she's in the town of Witting, I think. I don't think I know where that is. Or Witten. Sorry, Witten. Witten Herdica. Okay. That's it. Somewhere Not close Vitting. by. Bitten. Sorry. Yeah, I got a lot of noises here. You got a squeaky chair. No, the, um, let me put the number at 30, age 30. Mm. When I'm looking back at age 30, that's not, that's not the best time for me. There's a dip. I'm certain of it. Oh, we're going to get personal here. We're going to hear the story of Connor Dillon's life right N- now, right? No, no, not at all. It's just the reason I think about it, you just turned 40. Yeah. And one thing I've heard people say uh, more in Germany than anywhere else is that your 40s are better than your 30s. Hmm. And I'd never, I'd never thought that way. It, I was always sure it was the opposite. But the logic beti- behind this German way of thinking is that you've gone through the major upheavals of your life, most of them, hopefully. Uh, you've, the beginning of your career, uh, if you're going to have a long-term relationship, that, and then if you're going to have children, then that. And you've gone through that in your, mostly in your early 30s or in your 30s all the way up to 40. Again, all of these phases can happen at any time. But as a trend... Hmm your 40s may be better than your 30s. And it's just odd to me, it's surprising to me that her, that the data doesn't show any of that. You're, yeah, you're speaking generally there, and I'm wondering whether 
specific events have a gigantic impact on your life satisfaction longitudinally going all the way through through to the end of your life because if i look back at my 40 years now uh there was a a day when i was 18 um october 15th 2001 i was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes and to this day that but uh, more than anything else that has affected my life satisfaction my fe- my subjective feeling of happiness or feeling okay nothing else has had an impact like that. And I'm wondering whether those specific events have more of an influence than, than the general trends that you're talking about right now. Yeah. The thirties, the forties. Yeah. What, what about, what if events, you know, finding out you have a chronic illness or losing a loved one or something like that. It's just so hard that you'd never get out of it. Yeah. Yeah. I guess we'll leave it there for now. If any of our listeners out there have an opinion on this, something that's very different from what we've just been saying, more in line with the data, less in line with the data, I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely interested in this one. Because Everyone should have a say on it, right? I, well, I, if this, this, I was going to say, if this show has a purpose, it's to make people <laughs> happier. We can't do that, probably, but it's, it's nice to think. We can at least think, inform. Yeah, it's nice to think about and to wonder about, because I think we all would like to be happier. I think I can say that with some uh uh that's what i'm looking for um sense of certainty i can say that with some sense of certainty probably su at dw.com science unscripted W. Made for Minds.